The text from my sermon this morning is that part of Matthew we read together just a few moments ago. That, of course, is Matthew's record of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This piece of the history of the life and the work of Christ is found in the first three of the Gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And all three of them place it very early in Jesus' life, quite possibly immediately after his baptism. And all three make it clear that this time of testing and deprivation was no accident. Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark writes that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and all specifically for the purpose of being put to the test by Satan. They were told that Jesus fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, and that during that time or after that time, the devil came to him, tempting him, testing him, trying to compromise him at the very least, trying to destroy him at the worst. This time of trial took place in a very dramatic time in the life of Jesus. We think about Jesus before his baptism, and we wonder how much he clearly understood of the purpose for his life. That he had a clear understanding of his identity is very clear from his words recorded in the Gospel of Luke from a time when Jesus was 12 years old. That's when he was left behind in the temple, and when his parents found him, he said to them, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? So at that young age, Jesus knew of his unique identity, that he was, in some sense, the Son of God. But we wonder how much more than that he knew. Surely Joseph and Mary would have told him probably over and over the stories that highlight the unique circumstances of his conception and his death, or his birth, the declarations of angels, that strange providential decree of Caesar Augustus, the visits of the shepherd and the magi. Surely he knew that the hand of God was upon him. Surely he knew that the purpose of God was before him. But we wonder how often he wondered, what is it exactly that I am to do? And when am I to do it? For 30 years he waited the devoted son, the strong older brother, establishing a good reputation among his friends and neighbors in the village of Nazareth. But very recently, strange sensations began to move deep within him. He felt drawn to that place where his distant cousin John was preaching and baptizing. He felt compelled for reasons that he perhaps only partially understood to step forward and to be baptized. But then, all of a sudden, things began to become more clear to him. The Holy Spirit came upon him in some new way. And there was a voice from heaven announcing to those with ears to hear that he is the beloved Son of God. And then, almost immediately, he felt driven by some undeniable force to walk away. To walk away from the prophet, the only man on earth who may have had the beginnings of the answers to his questions. 
to walk away from that band of people most likely to recognize and to follow him, to walk away alone toward the wilderness of Judea. The place where the Holy Spirit drove Jesus was at least symbolically one where the rivers of sacred history flow together to become a fountain of life. The Jews referred to the Old Testament often as being the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, was the lawgiver. The consummate prophet was Elijah. The place of Jesus' temptation was the same place to which Elijah fled from his tormentors and where he was fed by ravens sent from God. From the place of Jesus' temptation, he could look off into the southeast and the near distance and see Mount Nebo, that place where Moses was allowed only to glimpse the promised land and where he died. And from there, I'm told that Golgotha, that ugly skull-shaped hill where in three years Jesus would die, was visible in the distance in the opposite direction. The public life and work of Jesus Christ, in it, the old was becoming the new. Prophecies were being fulfilled. Promises were being kept. And what a marvelous thing it is that that life and work should begin in a place representing the confluence of the streams of sacred history. The law, the prophets, the gospel, all met here in this barren place where Jesus was driven to be tested by the devil. The event open before us takes place like a drama on the stage of sacred history. Its setting in time is very, very early in the public life of Jesus, the Christ or the Messiah. Its setting in space is the rugged, arid wastes of the wilderness of Judea. And its characters are but two. One of these is Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom we who are reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time have heard spoken of as being, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The other character is a shady, mysterious figure who appears throughout the scriptures under various titles and in different forms or disguises. He is called Lucifer, and Satan, and the devil, and the evil one. In Genesis 3, he assumes the form of a serpent, while in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of his ability to transform himself to become an angel of light. In 1 Peter 5, we read that your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. And in Revelation 12, he's described as a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. About this foulest of all of the characters in the Bible, any thoughtful student of the scriptures has questions. We ponder the reality of the existence of Satan and wonder whether the many biblical passages that seem to deal with him as a real being are anything other than symbolic references to the evil in the human heart. And apart from any specific revelation from God, you and I can't answer a question of this sort. But make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ, 
the one we call Lord, had no doubts about the reality of the existence of Satan. Of him, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And to Peter on one occasion, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. I'm sure that one of the first goals of Satan is to blind people to the reality of his existence. And for us to challenge the reality of that existence is to pick a quarrel with Jesus Christ himself. And I trust that none of us is so inclined. But a second, very practical kind of question we ask about Satan, particularly looking at these verses from Matthew 4, has to do with the form that he assumed when he came to Jesus on these three occasions. It's easy to think that he probably would have assumed none of those to which I've already referred because they are too obvious. They would have given him away. But imagine this. Standing in the crowd on the day that Jesus was baptized was an old man dressed in the garb of a common man and leaning on his walking stick. The lines on his face spelled wisdom. His manner was inoffensive. He seemed genuinely curious about what John was preaching. And in fact, he may even have stepped forward himself to receive baptism. He stood close enough to overhear the Baptist's conversation with the Savior. He saw the Spirit descending from heaven. He heard those magnificent words of divine introduction. And then he stood watching Jesus walk away toward the nearby mountains, as if captivated, unable to take his mind off the back of John's most recent subject. Later, Perhaps many days later, he went that way himself, not by accident, but very deliberately. And there he found Jesus alone with his thoughts and made his appearance seem accidental. He paused near the place where Jesus was resting and began to make small talk about the heat, about the dryness, about the loneliness of the place. And then pretending to recognize Jesus for the first time. He said, say, aren't you that young man that John baptized recently? I was there, he may have said. That was quite an occasion. The old man asked his young companion what he was doing there, so far away from anything that mattered, to which Jesus might have replied, I have some very serious thinking and praying to do. Looking around, the old man noticed that there was no tent to give Jesus shelter at night, no bag still half full of food supplies, and pretended to sympathize with his desolation. You've been here ever since your baptism, the old man exclaimed. How can you think about anything when you're half starved? And then with a voice of kindness, as a wise older gentleman coming alongside a younger man and giving advice intended only to help, the devil said to him, if you really are the son of God, why don't you use the powers that you must have to make food out of these rocks and satisfy your hunger? And then your mind will be clear to think about greater things. And thus, possibly, 
opens the three-scene drama of the temptation of Christ. We notice that Satan's first attempt to distract the heart and mind of Christ was an appeal to the needs of the body. You'll remember that the history of human depravity begins with a simple appeal to the lusts of the flesh. Satan tempted Eve to eat from the forbidden tree, and the groundwork for the necessity of the cross was laid in her disobedience and that of Adam that followed. It is neither new nor unique to us as Americans, but as a culture, we seem obsessed with the flesh. In bookstores, works by such authors as Dr. Atkins and Dr. Ruth are bestsellers. While on television, there are entire channels devoted to nothing but the preparation and the serving of food, many programs about fashion, and an abundance of ads telling us how to smell better, how to smile brighter, how to have more luxurious hair, and how to hide the inexorable march of time. The devil's first tactic was to distract Jesus from his religious meditations to the needs of his body. I suspect that if the average churchgoer in America were required to stand before his congregation and testify regarding the amount of time that he devotes to the care of his soul and the amount of time that is devoted to the care for his flesh, that he would be embarrassed by the comparison of the numbers. And the old man in my story would be delighted. It's interesting to think that between the parts of the conversations recorded here, some time lapsed. Maybe the old man made his suggestion about the rocks and moved on. A day or so, or three or four, or a week later, he came back by that way and stopped again and asked Jesus, what did you do with my suggestion? This was a real temptation for Jesus. You and I have to remember that. It's hard to understand how it would have been because he is the son of God. But he was subject to all of the needs, all of the weaknesses of the flesh. And we have to understand that this was a real temptation that may have required time to think about on his part. And so it may not have been immediately, but a day or two or a week later that he responded when the old man returned and asked about what he had said. That Jesus said, no, I can't do that because it is written in the Bible that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he was there not to feed his body. He was there to feed his mind and to feed his soul. In the second scene, the evil one changes tactics and appeals to Jesus' religious interests. When you think about what you know about the early life of Jesus Christ, there are many places that come to your mind. You remember the stable in which he was born and the house in which the wise men found him later. You think of the house in Nazareth where he grew up and the synagogue he faithfully attended with his family and his friends. There was the Jordan River where he was baptized and this wilderness into which he was driven. 
There was the mountain on which he preached, the sea on which he walked, the garden in which he prayed, the hill on which he died. And the tomb where they laid him wrapped in swaddling cloths like a baby and where death could no longer hold him. But of all of the places that we associate with the earthly life of Jesus Christ, none of them were so important or so sweet to him as the temple in Jerusalem. It was he who planted the idea of building that temple in the mind of David. And it was he who gave Solomon instructions regarding its design. It was he who year after year hid behind the veil in the Holy of Holies to receive the sacrifices and the prayers of the high priest. It was the train of his robe that filled the temple in the vision of Isaiah. It was to him that the faithful brought their gifts and their praise over the centuries. It was to the temple that he was drawn as a boy and from which he could barely tear himself away. And it was near the temple that Jesus would later, later weep, knowing that the day was coming when not one stone shall be left atop another. And it was at the temple, whether he was taken physically to the place or transported in his imagination, that the second of these three temptations was set before him. Does Satan know our thoughts? Can Satan peer into our hearts? From my limited knowledge of the scripture, I'm not sure what the answer to those questions might be. But in our text, it seems that Satan did know or sense that Jesus had come to reach out to the Jewish people and that he desired their recognition, their affection, their trust, their worship. And with this in mind, he suggested that the Lord stand at some high point on the roof or the wall of the temple, that he should wait until an anxious crowd gathered on the pavement below him and then jump. The drama reminds us that Satan knows the scripture. He quotes from Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. And the implication is that Jesus, by being caught by the angels and lowered safely to the ground, would then have an adoring crowd literally eating out of his hand. But again, whether it is immediately or after some time of thought, Jesus responds by citing a corrective passage of Scripture that says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. In the final scene, we find Satan playing what has to be regarded as his trump card. He offers Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world in exchange for his worship and his servitude. In conjunction with this third temptation, the issue of biblical literacy is raised. Matthew says, the Bible says, that the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. The confessional standards of this church declare over and over our allegiance to the traditional Christian view of the Bible, 
that it is literally the Word of God inspired by His Spirit to such an extent that every word that is in the Bible is precisely the word that God intends to be there. And not only that, but the Scriptures have been so protected as they've been transmitted from one culture to another down the passage of time that they arrive in our hands as the Word of God intact. But does the believing the Bible is literally the word of God mean that every word, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph in the Bible should be understood literally? That is, in the most immediate and the most precise meaning of the words employed in the sacred text. And we ask that kind of question, and I recognize that we're skating out onto pretty thin ice. Because once we step back from the position of the strict literalist, that the Bible is not only literally the word of God, but every word in the Bible must be taken literally and in no other way, the door stands open to the eventual erosion of the authority of scriptures and their demise as a source of authority among those who hunger and thirst for truth and righteousness. We need to be very vigilant and standing guard against this kind of slippage, for the Bible is the foundation of our faith. And once doubts about the Bible creep in among us, then that faith begins to crumble. But on the other hand, it seems that there is a certain wisdom that requires us to understand that there are parts of the Bible which are themselves literally the word of God that God does not intend for us to interpret literally. An obvious example of this occurs in the very next chapter of the same gospel, where in verse 29, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I know of no scholar I know of no layman, brand new to the reading of Scripture, who takes these words literally. To all, it seems obvious that what the Lord is doing here is using exaggerated speech to make a statement of believers, to believers, about the horrors of sin and what ought to be our desire to be done with sin in every shape and form in our lives. And there's a similar example of this in our text, because we're told that Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. There is no mountain anywhere on the face of the earth from which all of the kingdoms of the world can be seen. The world is like a basketball. If I were to hold your basketball in front of you and ask you folks in the second row how much of that basketball you could see, depending on your mathematical skills, you would give me a fraction, but it would be less than a whole. If I were to ask you folks back at the 14th row how much of the basketball you could see, it might be a little more, but it would still be less than half. If we could stand on the moon, if we could stand on the sun, or some further point in the universe and look at the earth through the sharpest of telescopes, we would see only half of the earth because half of the earth is hidden by half of the earth. Now, we bring that back to our text. We're told that the devil took Jesus up onto a mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world, 
And we understand that there is something other than a literal geography lesson at the heart of this particular story. It is literally the word of God. Make no mistake about that. But it seems to be a part of the literal word of God that you and I are not intended by God to take literally. Our call is to be faithful in our reading and our contemplation of the scriptures. Our duty is to be wise and judicious in our understanding of the Bible and, of course, its application to life. In this third temptation, Satan says, in effect, to Jesus, if you will sit at my right hand, if you will act and rule in my name, I'll give you everything that your heart's desire." And perhaps implied in this offer is something like this. I have an easier way for you to accomplish your goals. It won't be necessary for you to be widely misunderstood or rejected or denied or betrayed, and you won't have to go to the cross. The devil offered Jesus a shortcut, as he often offers us shortcuts. An easy way to attain the divine purposes for Jesus' life. But the offer was ridiculous. The price was greater than the cost of doing things God's way. And Jesus, again quoting scripture, said, Away from you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is the outline and a quick survey of the contents of this familiar passage of Matthew. The temptation of Jesus Christ. It holds many valuable lessons for us. First of all, the Bible makes it very clear that God the Father not only knew what his son was facing, he orchestrated it. Jesus was led, Jesus was driven by the Spirit into these circumstances that God knew everything about before any of them took place. When you and I face temptations of various sorts, When we feel the lure of evil or doubt creeps into our minds, threatening to rob us of the joy and the peace of salvation, we must understand that these are times and places into which God himself has led us. And we must know that they are intended for our good, for our growth, and for his glory. Another lesson from this familiar story has to do with the fact that Jesus was holy in his character, perfect in all of his ways, and yet he required a broad knowledge of the word of God in order to be victorious in times of temptation. If that was his need, he who is perfect, he who is holy, how much greater is my need and yours? And finally, there are two passages of Scripture I'd like to commend to you. I urge you to read them at your leisure. I'm going to read them without comment, but they relate directly to what we've been talking about. The first is the last paragraph of the fourth chapter of Hebrews, where we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
And the second of these two passages is 1 Corinthians 10.13, where Paul was led by the Spirit to say, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, and will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Let us pray. Our Father, this passage we've been looking at is mysterious to us in many ways. It's hard for us to understand how your Son, perfect in wisdom and knowledge and understanding and strength, could take seriously any of these trials that Satan set before him. And yet, it is recorded precisely because it was a very real challenge to him. We thank you for his faithfulness to you. We thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you for his dependence upon your word. And we are reminded, our God, that he is our Savior, he is our Lord, and his life is the pattern after ours should be made. Let it be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.